0: Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 414, Chat and Cricket with Chris Cairns. Yes, yes. hey. Hello, Big Chillians, and welcome back to The Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, I had to ask you, I know... You now have Instagram, so you're you're getting deeper into social media. Did you, by any chance, get to watch the Ronaldo showering live feed that took place last week?
1: Um, no, I didn't. Surprisingly enough, and also I like how you say that. It's a I didn't just get Instagram. This is not a super recent it's development. Kind of recent <laughs> in
0: the grand scheme but, of Instagram.
1: <laughs> in the grand scheme, I was a late. I did. I was a holdout from Instagram on a personal level. I'd yeah. used it professionally, but I was on a personal level. I was a holdout. And then eventually, just as other social media kind of platforms started to die out a little bit, I had to give in. It was one of the few areas where I did actually decide I I couldn't just keep up. But no, tell me all about this oh. stream, which I'm sure you loved. Did you did well, screen capture everything? I
0: did not, but 670,000 people tuned in which it was less than a one minute Instagram live video. So within the one minute. Was this intentional? Uh, yes. So I think two or three weeks ago, he unintentionally did like an Instagram live video. Like he pushed it by accident and it was like him just like looking at his phone and an enormous amount of people just signed on because he was doing a live feed. But this one was intentional. It was very strange He was showering outdoors with like his swim trunks on. And it was just like a minute of him just showering. And then that was it. And then it ended. (laughs) But within that time,
1: 670,000 people tuned in. Was he like properly showering as in he's like using shampoo or is he just kind of letting water? I think he's just letting water. It's
0: as if he went into like a saltwater pool and was just showering it off. And he's just rinsing off. Yeah. Okay, I mean, maybe you know what? I, I didn't, I didn't watch the intricacies of the bar of soap or conditioner, so maybe I'm surprised. wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Feel free <laughs> to correct me on our social media platforms if I'm not up to date on my Ronaldo showering
1: technique. Yeah, what a natural plug you've got there, Frank. So obviously, if you're tuning in for the first, if you're a first-time listener, if you know we've got Chris Cairns on the con on the podcast later on for a really great interview with him. So if this is your first time, make sure to follow us on you know, search for the Big Chill Podcast on Instagram, on Twitter, and on YouTube. You'll be able to find us. Uh, And also, you know, leave us a review. If you're a new one, make sure you subscribe and tell a friend. But I guess before we get to that interview, though, you're mentioning Cristiano Ronaldo. Interesting weekend for him in his outdoor shower. Not such a good weekend for him on the pitch, although he did not play in the Manchester Derby. It's one of the big talking points right now. The fact that Cavani and Ronaldo, their futures at United are in doubt. Rumor has it that Cavani has basically said he will not play for United again. The situation with Cristiano Ronaldo is a little bit more complicated. But they played the Manchester derby on yesterday, which was a big match for both teams, big match for City with the gap to Liverpool becoming ever closer. And City put in a pretty convincing performance, came out 4-1 winners. The first half was fairly close. In the second half, it just looked like United completely gave up. I mean, it was a really poor showing from them in that second half.
0: Yeah, I wasn't able to watch, but I looked at all the stats, and exactly what you said, the first half to second half stat lines were pretty drastic, and it it looked as if United didn't even have the ball in the second half.
1: (laughs) I I think in the final 15 minutes, or at least one 15-minute period towards the end of the match, City had over 90% possession, which is just startling. (laughs) I mean, even against an amateur team, that would almost surprise you. You would just think that at a certain moment in time, they're going to get goal kicks and throw-ins and kind of just be able to maintain a little bit of possession. So, Is
0: I, is this where you put in your plug? Even if I were playing, I think I could do better than that. Um, <laughs> do you want to put in your, your self-confidence plug here? <laughs>
1: I, I, I don't know if I would boast that I could have done better than a bunch of professional footballers. I don't think it's the sport in which I would... I would have the biggest step up, but I don't know, maybe I could have done better than that. They probably would have scored more goals in that time period, but I would have at least held on to the ball slightly longer. How about that I'll, I'll, I'll put that spin on it okay
0: now you know we did miss an opportunity with with talking to Chris, which again we'll get to later in the interview, but you know one of your biggest self confidence is that you are a better cricketer than Paul Collings would. That would have been interesting to ask him. Uh, they had to have overlapped a little. I think he oh, was coming in at the back end, right?
1: No, no, no. They would have had a pretty significant overlap.
0: Okay. So he definitely had faced them.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Oh, man. We missed an opportunity there. We have to get him back on to see. We'll have him reenact, or not reenact, but kind of go through, if he remembers, facing Collingswood, and then we'll Why send you, you to New Zealand. Why are you calling him
1: Collingswood, by the way? <laughs> It's Collingwood. Collingwood, I don't want to say Collingwood. <laughs> um Yeah, I mean look, the difficulty there, right, is he's never seen me play cricket. So
0: I mean he That's would, what I say, you well, have to... we can send video to New Zealand of you bowling and he can judge it.
1: But my claim was <laughs> in my prime. I'm not in my prime anymore. I know. Well, that right according now, to you, it takes like a month to get back to it, so <laughs> six months. Bowling, I don't know. I think bowling now would just be I mean, I Elias Bold when was that, three years ago when I went and turned out for that Sri Lankan team here. And just I haven't used my shoulder in that way in such a long time that I don't know. It would, it would take a while just to be able to get the pace back in because my shoulder is just stiffened up in a way just from kind of lack of that type of rotation. It would be a real challenge, but who knows? Do
0: we have any video from the Prime that we can send over?
1: Um, I don't think so. I mean, th- you know, the issue is, is like I kind of existed in the pre-internet era almost. So there's not this, you know, there's not like YouTube clips being uploaded. You know, what I mean, like when we were in high school, obviously people were f- recording stuff, but you weren't, you know, they w- they didn't exist online in some easily accessible place where they have then continued to be so whilst there was definitely video footage of me at that time, I have no idea where it would be now. So no, the answer to that is no. I wish there were I, I, <laughs> I, I wish I was. I wish there was. Some, I wish we know, did too. Yeah. You know, if there was a top 10 Hewitt deliveries somewhere on YouTube, just some nice left arm over in swinging, you know, that would have been, that would be a beautiful thing, but sadly does not exist. But Another little hot topic from this week. Some breaking news in some respects, although it will be less breaking by the time people listen to this, but the NFL slightly rocked by the news coming out that Atlanta Falcons wide receiver, Ridley, has been banned, well suspended, I should say, for the, indefinitely, but at least until the end of next season. So he can apply for reinstatement a year from now to try and play in the 2023 season. But for the time being, he is suspended from all NFL activity. This comes on the back of the fact that he was caught placing three bets in, at the end of November. So this is after he had left the Falcons and he was not an active player at this moment in time. He was in Florida and he used the Hard Rock betting app to place three bets totaling $1,500, three parlays of three, five, and eight teams, including the Falcons, but it was the Falcons to win in their game against the Jacksonville Jags, which they did win. He placed these three bets. It was flagged by the kind of apps betting system because obviously he'd used his real name and things and real details and was reported to the NFL. He immediately... Gave an interview uh, with the NFL relevant authorities after he was caught, but yeah, he's got this this big suspension. Some people think it's a little bit harsh. I don't. I think you have to be so careful about the involvement of of players starting to bet on themselves and and bet on games whilst being active players. I can understand why the NFL is taking a somewhat hard line on the punishment here, even if they have openly said that there's no implication that he was relying on insider information or speaking to active Falcons players when he was placing these bets.
0: Yeah, to me, it's a, it's a tricky one because while I agree with part of his reasoning that he, you know, he wasn't even with the organization at the time, he wasn't betting on them to lose all understandable, but I think the NFL as unfair as it is to Calvin Ridley, maybe for being the the one they have to set the example, I think they do have to set this example, especially because now in the United States, sports gambling is so prevalent, and you don't want to start this slippery slope of, well, he wasn't technically with the team, and then you have next person down the line. It gets a little closer and closer, and it's unfortunate for him, but I think as unfair as it is, the NFL is in the long run, doing the right thing here with just kind of giving this pretty severe sentence right off the bat and setting the precedent that, look, we're not going to take this lightly. We're not going to let it happen. You know, we're fine with sports gambling in general, but the players have got to not be a part of it.
1: Yeah, it's tough. And when you hear, you know, current and former NFL players talk about this topic, they've basically said it's made very clear to them that they should have no involvement in betting in the NFL in any way. So it does seem like a harsh punishment, but I do agree with you. You're also kind of establishing that baseline. You know, America is in the process of just accepting sports gambling and every aspect of it so quickly, and it is integrating itself into all elements of professional sport at a speed that makes me slightly uncomfortable at times. And so I can understand from the NFL's perspective, you are laying down the law here of, okay, this might be the – sort of least offensive possible, you know, example of someone betting on their own team and betting on sports on their own sport. But still this is the kind of ban you're going to face if you are caught doing this. And it makes it very clear to all players that there, are kind of no mitigating circumstances that will be accepted. And I mean, I think based on the letter that Roger Goodell wrote, the kind of official statement that was, put out about the suspension it appears as if the door is certainly open to ridley a year from now to come back i would imagine that this suspension will be a season but i mean super costly it's gonna he has he will earn 11 million dollars over the course of this time time period so a 1500 I thing he
0: hit those three parlays
1: <laughs> yeah you better hope <laughs> you better hope Did that they, they win,
0: win?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I mean, unlucky yeah, from his perspective. I, I,
0: I think it's just interesting because the way that he just casually bet it makes me wonder if he just didn't understand the rule. Because you have to imagine if he really wanted to bet on a game, not with the organization at the time, he could have found ways to bet on yeah, You can on ask a games. friend.
1: Yeah, you you, you yeah. say to one of your friends, like, oh, hey, you got a gambling app? can I give you 1500 bucks and you'll put a bet on for me? And if it wins, you pay me out. You'd think not that we're encouraging NFL players to find workarounds, but anyone with a degree of common no, sense. I, yeah, exactly.
0: Which makes me like, th- you have to imagine he just didn't understand that even not with the organization because of ind- or because he had stepped away that he still couldn't bet. And, and that's the unfortunate part because I honestly think maybe he just didn't know the rule and now he's going to suffer severely for not knowing it. And it's, that's why it is a lot harsher where if it were someone who was still on a team playing and was making bets and clearly knew that you can't do that, he gets the year suspension. So in that sense, it it is unfortunate that this is the circumstance that's going to do it, but the NFL has to set their foot down hard to, to stop potential people in the future.
1: Yeah. I mean, based on everything, that you hear players and and coaches and staff talk about, I think it's drilled into them that betting on the sport is unacceptable. So it would surprise me. He did fall into this gray area because he sort of wasn't an active player. I guess I, I saw on social media, a few people saying, Oh, does this mean that if Tom Brady bets on a game now and then comes out of retirement at the end of next season, is he immediately suspended? And I don't think those are exact parallels because, you know, being retired is a very different position from saying you're taking a break from a team because of mental health issues. I guess the skepticism someone would have is, okay, he got caught this time and flagged by this app, which was only active in Florida for about three weeks. So it's pretty incredible that during its short existence, it managed to catch an active NFL player out for using it. But I guess the skepticism someone might have is, okay, this is the first time maybe he's used an app or at least the first time he's used this app or the first time the system has caught him. But maybe he's been using a more traditional book, you know, like a bookie to place bets before this. So I can understand you can't, I don't know. It's a very strict punishment. I don't think he, I think, and it, you would think that you'd hope that he would had the common sense if he thought his gray area meant that maybe he'd be allowed to contact someone at the team or contact your agent or someone and just say, hey, I just want to make sure I'm not making a mistake here. I know I'm not a, a really an active player right now. Does this mean I'm allowed to put a kind of small bet on one of these games? I'm not speaking to any coaches or any teammates about it. You'd think that would be the thing you would do, but it's a, it's a tough lesson to learn because he's still on his rookie contract, so it's not like he's sitting on a ton of money right now, and that is a lot of money to lose and a lot of time – had a career as you're starting, starting to make his way towards his prime.
0: Yeah. And the other crazy thing is the Atlanta Falcons now only have one receiver on their 53 man roster, and that is rookie, uh, out of Arizona state, Frank Darby, who had one reception last year. So <laughs> currently their wide receivers have one total catch from last year.
1: Yeah, and for someone like Matt Ryan, right. Who not too long ago would have still felt as if while this offense is primed to still be a dominant force and okay, maybe we're not as good as we were a number of seasons ago, but if things go right, we could go on a run. Suddenly those weapons are starting to fall away one by one. And he'll find himself in a situation where barring some trades or a good draft, then it's Matt Ryan throwing to pits and everyone else is going to be kind of an unknown quantity
0: does Matt Ryan request the trade to the Niners?
1: I don't think the Niners would want him. I don't know if you're Matt Ryan, if you (laughs) request a trade, Uh, the issue too, I mean, it's a crowded quarterback market and I mean, that's a massive hypothetical, right? But I don't know who it is that would be making that kind of move for him. Speaking of which all signs seem to point towards Aaron Rodgers re-signing with the Green Bay Packers. And, you know, it looked as if he was out the door and, strong talk linking him to Denver but it seems as if some bridges are being repaired some large contract offers are being made and Aaron Rodgers could very well be a Green Bay Packer next season
0: Yeah I just hope this gets settled early in the season and we don't have to listen to a new theory every week as to what he's doing or what he's up to
1: but we'll see Do you think he do you think he kind of came when he was a backup for Brett Favre. Instead of learning the gunslinging, dick pic sending approach of Brett Favre, he decided, you know what, I'm going to learn? I'm going to learn how to really complicate things for my team, either by hinting at retirement or hinting at wanting trades. And if you guys thought Brett Favre was difficult, I am going to make things even worse a few years from now.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see when he plays his Minnesota Vikings card. <laughs> when is that going to come out into play? <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to yeah. play for the Vikings. <laughs> Rogers, you're under contract for four more years. I'll figure it out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. now he's definitely, definitely interesting and must be disappointing for, for Love, right? As a backup QP who, who was probably feeling as if, here we go, this is my shot. And now I may never, I mean, he may very well never really get a chance as a Green Bay Packer because It may come that, you know, is he going to re-sign a contract with the Packers at the end of his rookie deal if Rodgers is still hanging around? So this could kind of be the end to his time there. Not immediately, because I'm sure they'll hang on to him as a backup, but it's difficult to imagine a long-term future when you could find yourself five, you know, Rodgers could hang around for another five, six, seven years if he really wants to. Well, when you said this is
0: difficult for love, I thought you meant... Aaron Rodgers and Shailene Woodley because we talked previously about their their engagement is is no longer but I did see that they were seen back together at a friend's wedding so maybe all is not lost for love with Rodgers
1: <laughs> yeah maybe maybe Aaron Rodgers has decided you know he's kind of flipped everything he was doing so repairing all of the relationships that has sort of fallen apart for him over the last few months next thing we know he's going to be back in touch with his brother Speaking to his parents again, maybe buying them a new house. Who knows what's going to happen? But yeah, I mean, this is a <laughs> Rogers really turning the page on his most recent behavior.
0: Or one week from now, he's the official long-term host of Jeopardy, <laughs> and retired from the NFL. Yeah.
1: Tries to host Wordle online. <laughs> That'd just, be great. Just five minutes. Just five minutes of him at midnight every day. I
0: was just thinking it's just his face kind of in the background of the Wordle.
1: Yeah, just saying letters. They just record him saying every letter of the alphabet. And so when you click on it, it's just Aaron Rodgers announcing it. So the last thing I just wanted to bring
0: up was just to remind our listeners that March Madness is quickly approaching. So we'll set up a uh, bracket like we did last year or I guess the year before as well. And you got everyone can participate and see who gets crowned the champion of March Madness NCAA basketball. I think we had some pretty close ones the previous years. Uh, so we'll we'll see. And, and we used to have a former host on this podcast who would make his picks, who had no knowledge of the sport, but we got rid of the person with no knowledge because we thought it would be bad for the podcast. So
1: now we have two people who know the teams. <laughs> oh yeah in depth but no yeah so another reason to follow us on social media we'll share all the details of our march madness bracket on there and we'll get it created and on the next episode give all the details i guess as well but yeah and and we'll even try and arrange some sort of prize for the winner this time around so i know prizes have been hinted at in the past this time we'll actually get something real out there but but no it should be should be interesting it feels like unlike you know, seasons in the past where sometimes you go into it with a dominant force in college basketball. It's a question of if they can win it. This time it feels like there's four or five teams in who are both beatable, but still feel like they're very much in with a chance. So maybe even a more, um, even madder version of March Madness than we're used to.
0: And I, I, t- I have to tell you, I am quite torn as to who I'm going to pick because we like to talk about the Duke of curse on the podcast and how sometimes teams I pick go down very hard and very quick. And the University of Arizona is currently the, the number two team in the nation. So I would really like to see them go to the finals and win. But I don't know if I have the heart to pick them knowing what I would do to them. So that'll be a, a, a tough internal battle. I'll have to fight myself.
1: Yeah, yeah. Listeners will have to know maybe ahead of time, see if they can find out how you're, which way you're leaning before uh, deciding to, how they make their picks so they know where the Duke of Curse is going to fall. Now, speaking of college basketball, I know it was a topic we discussed pre-recording and you didn't want to come up, but a former women's college basketball star is being currently detained in Russia after a, uh, on drugs charges. So Brittany Greiner, one of the most recognizable faces in the WNBA, one of the few women in the WNBA who can dunk consistently, so already that makes her notable. Uh, was arrested in 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 Russia after a drug sniffing dog identified her bag her bag that she was bringing on as carry on luggage for narcotics. So it's an ongoing legal matter, but she is facing five to ten years in pr- prison in Russia. Which, I mean. Not to compare the two in terms of offenses, but if Calvin Ridley thinks life is going to be pretty tough being suspended by from the NFL for a year, I think facing five to 10 years in a Russian prison has to just be terrifying, particularly given the current circumstances.
0: Yeah, so I mean, they what the Russian authorities have said was that they found uh, a smelling liquid and an expert determined that it was cannabis oil, which is a narcotic substance so that was what she was arrested for um, but yes i don't i don't know the specifics of the the legal system which, there but
1: <laughs> which again seems harsh right because when you can read the initial headline you think that for some reason Brittany Griner is like a drug mule moving things from moscow to new york and instead it's probably just something she has personal realized late significance pen. Yeah. yeah that she hasn't realized is a big no-no in some countries and definitely at the moment, as an American or a Westerner, probably not something you want to have be flying around Russia with. But yeah, I mean, I have to see what happens to her. But obviously, diplomatic relations between those two countries would be described as frosty at best at the moment. So I think it'll be a, not as easy as the for the American embassy or consulate to sort out a release and a slap on the wrist for her. So...
0: Yeah, and, and frosty, frosty, not in the 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 nice
1: Wendy's chocolate milkshake sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, as in, airing towards a uh, cold war kind of sense. Speaking of Russian athletes, I don't know if you've seen, but there is this new trend of Russian athletes wearing the Z symbol. I did see to that. signify their su- su- support for the war. With a Russian gymnast wearing a Z symbol on the podium, and now faces a long ban because they wore it next to a Ukrainian athlete. I don't think that's why specifically they are facing a ban, but just as a result of the fact that they're not allowed to make uh, political statements. thought it was interesting. I find it very interesting because Z, or Zed, if you're a British listener, not in the Russian alphabet. So it's an interesting choice of a symbol to represent their war against the West.
0: Yeah, and I think you said what I read as well, that he was facing also on the podium was a Ukrainian athlete, right? How, I, that to me, I think, is how difficult must that be to compete against someone who your countries are currently at war with? I mean, that has to be insane. The, the amount of emotion that must be there. I, I, I don't know how the results went, but just to be able to, I think, compete Sometimes the, the Ukrainian with everything one. going on, oh, that's—I mean—that's insane. Like to to think of the mental composure you have to have to beat someone who is affiliated with a country that is currently at war with your country must be insane.
1: Yeah, no. So the Ukrainian Ilya Kovtun won the gold medal, whereas the Russian Ivan Kuliak finished in third. Yeah, and he, he's received a, a backlash. A former Ukrainian Olympic gold medalist wrote on Instagram that, of course you will excuse me, but let the Russians not shout that sport is out of politics. Congratulations to our guy. Everything is in its place. Glory to Ukraine. So, and I do think that's the interesting thing, right? And and to say Russia needs to be careful, obviously advice, they're definitely not going to heed, but if you are in a situation where you've had governing bodies of sports, make the decision that Russia will not be participating. And Russia's argument in response to that is that politics should be kept out of sports and that these are apolitical institutions and have nothing to do with what's going on in global political and affairs. It's not a great argument if you're then going to try and, if you're going to have athletes make political statements during events. So if you're going to be Russia, you also need to crack down on it. Because if you want to show any level of consistency there, you have to try and remove all forms of political statements, including your own punishment from international sporting events. Yeah, agreed. (laughs) But yeah, on that note, should we hand things over to our our interview and our discussion with Chris Cairns?
0: Yeah, Uh, I think I thought it was a great interview. I think the listeners are really going to enjoy it.
1: Yeah, great discussion, and even if you're thinking to yourself, you know, you're not familiar with cricket or you're not familiar with New Zealand sporting achievements over the past sort of 20 years, I think it's really worth a listen, and, and in particular, him, in his approach to some of the challenges he is going through. It's inspirational stuff, so, you know, it's it's some interesting insight, and, and it might even give some people a greater appreciation of, of cricket as a whole, so worth a listen, even if cricket isn't your sport. Well, welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. We're now delighted to be joined by our guest, Chris Cairns, New Zealand cricketing legend, I guess one of the the great all-rounders of your generation. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. A pleasure. Now, I know, I guess, the best way of kicking things off in some respects, although not the best, in, but it's been a little bit of a difficult period for you health-wise, so sort of best to ask, how are you and, and how's everything going on that front?
2: You're good. I, well, I, I know that we've only got probably an hour on the show. So my litany of uh, medical uh, happenings is a lot longer than that. Um, so I'll keep it brief. But uh, look, I, I suffered a, an aortic dissection um, about seven months ago. Um, I didn't even know really what it, that even meant at the time. But, um, you know, I was lucky to survive that. Uh, during that process, I um, had a, uh, I suffered a spinal stroke, um, which sort of rendered me... Um, Pretty much unable to move from the waist down, uh, which I've been in rehab for and and, and working hard at. Um, and then of recent times, um, I suffered um, or was diagnosed with uh, bowel cancer. So uh, someone's trying desperately hard to finish me off, um, and so I'm sort of trying to uh, to work through all of these omens, uh, which I'm I'm doing thankfully with uh, the support of family and friends and. And I must say, it's been overwhelming from a, uh, a support point of view, from you know fans around the world and, and cricket lovers and and whatnot. So you know, when you have some really crap days, um, reading all the comments and the posts and the remarks, uh, it really it really keeps you going. Um, and that's you know, social media has a lot of bad things, um, but in, in in this instance, you know, it's it's very motivational, very humbling. So uh, you know, it's it's great. But look, it's going to be a long journey. Uh, one I'm prepared for, but uh, you know, that's that's
1: life. That's great to hear. And I mean, I've certainly seen, I know initially you said that you thought that you might not be able to walk again. You've had some pretty sort of inspirational videos come out of you making slow, but obviously very significant progress on that front. How is that going?
2: Yeah, it's um, the thing with nerve damage is that, you know, there's, there's just no known time frame. Um And so with muscles and bones, uh, you're looking at uh, you know, six weeks um, uh, with regards to healing and how it comes back. When you have nerve damage, um, it's, it's completely unknown. Every individual is different. Every injury is different. Um, how you respond to it is different. The age is different. Um, and so the, the most difficult part is that when the nerves turn off, so do the muscles. And so the atrophy that you, um, that you get Uh, means that even when the the nerves do come back um, and there's a flicker and the the signals are are open and the pathways are open, um, there's been such damage to the muscles and the atrophy that Building that muscle back up takes, you know, months if not years to to get that back. So that's why the process does take so long. And you know, I've got help from an exoskeleton. Um, uh, Kyogo is the 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 unit that I'm using, which sort of aids you as you're uh, walking or supporting you as you're walking along. So there's there's some some really good um, innovations out there. Um, but you know, again, it, it just comes down to hard work. You you literally shunt the chains forward inch by inch and, and day by day.
1: And I guess transitioning a bit into your sporting background, and I know this might be a little bit like comparing going on a kind of comfortable stroll to climbing Everest, but do you feel as if in any way your, your sporting background and your maybe history of working through rehab and dealing with injuries in any way helps you in terms of a mental approach to a kind of recovery path?
2: Oh, 100%. You know, um, when I was in the rehab hospital here in Canberra, the uh, people that were were in there, you know, you could see that it was an unnatural thing for them to, to to sort of push themselves every day to get up and to to go and rehab and do that. But you know, as as sports people uh, with injuries, um, that's just part and parcel of your career. It's part and parcel of. The discipline um, that uh, you know you're you're forced to do because injury is is a constant companion um, for an athlete, and so you know that's just the mindset that you get into. So it, it definitely helps. It it's still hard, you know. You I mean, you know, gosh, you have to force yourself to do it. And like I said, I come back. You have some pretty crap days, but you know uh, you understand why you're doing it. Um, and the hardest thing is is actually just getting yourself there. Um, so once you can get over that, then you know once you're there, it's it's not so bad.
0: Yeah, I I think, you know, we talked off podcast, you know, you're, you're actually a big NFL fan and um, Alex Smith kind of comes to mind when uh, he had his horrific injury and they kind of told him he was going to lose his leg and could never, you know, might never walk again. And, you know, he kind of had that athlete mindset to kind of push through and, and they were amazed at the progress he was making and how quickly he was making it. So I definitely think having that athlete mindset and having a lifetime of, of kind of pushing through injuries and, and, and the, you know, the mental fortitude, I'm sure that's helping.
2: Yeah, absolutely, man. And if you're in the NFL, sort of 20 mil a year, that helps as well to get back and get in get, get that. So, um, you know, in cricket, we're not sort of, we weren't paid quite those uh, vast sums. But, you know, the motivation um, to get back uh, and and play. But, you know, whether that's someone who's uh, an Olympian, uh, an NBA player or a cricket player or a hockey player, um, you know, it's I think it's, it comes back down to one word, and that's passion and um and sort of joking aside um you know whether it's vast sums of money or, or not um your passion is your passion regardless of you know what level of sport you play so that's that's the thing that drives you um to make sure that you come back So
1: that actually kind of brings up a topic that i wanted to ask you about because obviously towards the back end of your career your cricketing career t20 became uh you know started to become a more prominent format and I think most would agree that your style of play is extremely well suited to the t20 format both as a sort of big hitting imposing batsman and then as a, as a skillful bowler is there any part of you and obviously you had to achieve things that most people can only dream of from a sporting perspective is there any part of you that's maybe a little bit frustrated that if you'd come around sort of 10 15 years later you would have been primed in terms of the acceptance of this shorter you know format or just one of those things where you think you had a great run anyway and nothing's going to be perfect
2: um firstly it's it's quite surreal to hear someone with an american accent talking so eloquently about cricket like that's like that's actually that's actually fascinating um it's they're really good questions but you know i i come from a mindset which is like my father so my father played for new zealand in the generation before me um and you know he he played in front of pack crowds um, and they had no sponsorship on their shirts and they made sort of 50 bucks a day. Um, And so my generation was better off than his generation. And so subsequently, you know, I think you play the game, uh, you aim to leave it in a better place than when you started. And so, uh, we began that era of T20, and now the young guys who came through, you know, they're benefiting off the back of what was done, um, you know, when when we were leaving. So, no, I I don't have any um, issues with regards to, you know, what's available to the players today. You know, I I think um, in some cases, you know, they're, they're undervalued. Um, you know, when you look at percentages of um, um, share profit or Uh, Revenue turnover and all of these equations um, that uh, get attributed to a player share, um, you know, sometimes sometimes they're underpaid. And this is where the IPL um, in India has come along. The T20 competition uh, really revolutionized um, the I suppose the value uh, of the players, and no, I'm only I'm only happy for them that you know they're they're realizing the value off the back of what's been created. So yeah, every every generation plays its its part and its role. And as I say, if you you know you're happy if you leave it in a better place than you started.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say you kind of already brought it up with your your father Lance being a, a professional cricketer for New Zealand as well, and and I kind of want to kind of look into that and, and see what was that like was were you really encouraged to also get into cricket or did you just naturally kind of gravitate towards it you know being around it all the time and that's you know you, you know that's what you wanted to do kind of how did that work kind of getting into the sport with your father being uh, a professional yeah. cricketer
2: yeah I think I think it's you gravitate towards it because you know my old man was a pretty um, old school gruff um, you know brought up hard uh, you play hard um, but like I heard some interviews with Julian Edelman about the way his old man brought him up with regards to, you know, you crack the whip, which in today's uh, society, you know, you you probably don't get a lot of that these days because it's it's either frowned upon or, you know, we live, we live in different times and we, we, you know, view things through a different lens. Um, But I certainly came up through the, the old school uh, of, uh, you know, dad, dad never really came and watched me play a lot, mainly because, you know, Going down and watching a little kid play cricket was not really what he wanted to do. I mean, he was a young father, um, and so he was travelling as well. So I was pretty much left to my own device and, and went through some really good um, coaching schools. Um, you know, was given fundamentals by you know people who, perhaps when were, were not the best players, um, but often the best coaches are not the best players. And so, you know, I was given some uh, some really good fundamentals at a young age um, and lucky enough to be in in that environment. And then, you know, once I sort of started to get into teenage years and, and showed promise, um, then, you know, that's when dad really sort of started to come into, uh, you know, into his own because I could sort of talk a language with him that was at a, a high level, uh, which you know, when I was younger, I, I couldn't. So that sort of relationship with him and I in cricket uh, manifested itself more with age and maturity. Um, and so you know, that's, when, that's when I got the benefit of his expertise from the sort of the international game.
1: And, and, and when
0: you got the expertise, was it more mental or more like physical with the actual gameplay? You
2: think? Um, yeah, good question. Because for Dad, uh, with him and I, it was more around the physical. So he was somebody who would always uh, work out, you know, how something worked. So so very technically based. Uh, Dad was a very good golfer, and so you know he would tinker with his golf technique a lot. And 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 so whenever I was bowling or batting, there was a lot of technical focus, um, which was good for practice. But as you as you sort of play more international, you play more top level sport, um, you realize that it's actually, you know, 90% mental um, because at, at the top level, everybody can play, you know, like there's, you know, there's, there's no real freak unless you've got someone like a Tyreek Hill or something. I mean, unless you've got someone with blistering uh, assets that are just phenomenally better than, than other people, um, then, you know, then that separates you. But they're generational talents. But the, everybody else, you know, everybody else can play, right? So, so then the determining factor is is up here, which means that, okay, it's how I process. And and then delving a little bit deeper into it, it's, it's how you process failure. Because, again, everybody can win. Everybody can succeed. But it's, it's how you process failure that really separates the, you know, the, the good from the great.
1: That's an interesting point, point. and then, in a sense, like to feed off of that. How, did, in terms of how you were then developed, and how you all see other young players being developed in in New Zealand? Because I mean, I think most people would say that New Zealand punches well above its weight from a yeah. sporting perspective. I think from a rugby standpoint, that will be familiar with everyone. But even on a cricketing standpoint, a team that's made you know in recent years the cricket World Cup final, and you know came so close to winning, and then also the World Test Championship uh, final against India in the summer how do you explain then is there a, a the sort of preparation that they are doing with young athletes to have be an ability to produce such a sort of kind of consistent number of, of highly performing players?
2: Yeah, it's, um, that, it, it's, I mean, that's an unknown. It's, it's sort of like when you look at, you know, the, in, in, in Europe, I mean, you look at Croatia and what they produce with a small population and many, many sports. And, you know, you wonder what, the secret is or, or, what's, you know, what's, what's the key. Um, and I think, I think a lot of it is, um, it, well, everything is mindset. I mean, that's first and foremost, at, at the highest level, um, it's mindset, because if it was just about the game, then, you know, so many more people would be able to do it because the game doesn't change when you play, uh, at a high school level, or you play at a club level or you play at a university level, uh, it's the game's the same, you know. And then, but when you get to the to the top level, uh, it's it's about uh, you know the people that are watching on TV, the sponsor uh, obligations, um, you know, the the, the team pressures. Um, getting tickets for your family that you haven't been able to get, and they're hassling you with regards to what's going on. Honestly, the list just goes on and on and on uh, in how you deal with what's going on. So I think New Zealanders have a a very casual outlook on things. Um, I don't think they get too tied up in sort of the, the, or sweat the small stuff, if, if, if you know what I mean. And I think that, you know, that mindset, I think, helps with, when you get into, into the pressure situations um, uh, you know, you can keep it in perspective, uh, but it, it just comes down to what is, you know, what is your motivating uh, currency? You know, what is, what is the thing that you trade on that allows you to perform? And that's, and that's not the same for everybody. Um, some people it's fear. For example, you mentioned the rugby side of things. And for the all blacks, it's the fear of losing, um, you know, that they, have a negative connotation to a positive outcome. Uh, but for them, winning is a relief. Um, and so because of the pressure and the history that's placed on the, the team and the, and the sport, you know, they, they have this fear of, of losing that drives them. Um, uh, for me, it was always uh, winning. You know, I, I just wanted to win and just go out there. And, and that, for me, was the motivating factor. Other players in my same team, again, who were motivated by um, you know, fear of failure. And so it's important that every athlete identifies early on, you know, what is, what is the thing that drives them and what is the key component that gets them out of bed to go to training, uh, to perform in pressure situations and, and understand what is, is your thing. That's the most important aspect.
1: And I I mean, we're speaking about exceptional athletes then, and, and sort of people who maybe have a sort of 1% advantage over the most of the people out there. And I guess the cricketing world in the last week's been rocked by the news. Obviously, Shane Warne passing away. One of your most famous test innings came against Shane Warne in his prime and, and that Australian team that was so dominant in the sort of back end of the 90s and the early 2000s. What was the experience like facing Shane Warne? And sort of what? how did you feel like he changed the game? I mean, probably when you started your career, there weren't many leg spinners around, certainly not... Not from the subcontinent. How did you? How did that sort of change over the course of your career? Yeah, um, he—he, it's just so tragic, you know. I mean, it's it's so sad.
2: He's look, he's a bloke who's lived um, probably ten lifetimes in in one lifetime, Um, but to be sort of you know knocked out in your in your prime um, when he's such a a big personality. You know, it's sort of from a uh, from an American perspective. My wife and I were talking about this. It's sort of like, I mean, the loss of Kobe um, uh, of recent times, and and the outpouring of of that grief, and you know that that scenario. I mean, Warnie was uh, someone you know you just you just thought would would live forever. I mean, that's, that's, he was so strong mentally, such a strong personality, such a great man. Um, and so generous with his time, uh, you know, it's just, it was just such a shock, but he, as a competitor and as a cricketer, um, you know, he was, he was amazing. I, I He made me look like a complete fool, uh, in the early part of, of, of my career. So the battles that we had early on, you know, he was completely, he would dominate me, Completely. I mean, I, I had no idea what was coming down uh, when he sort of um, uh, did his thing, and it, it took me about oh gosh, how many years? It took me, it took me a good over half of my career playing against them to actually work out, um, you know, what or how to play, and um, it's sort of like like that that guy who's capable of hitting homers, but he just gets fed sliders all the time and he keeps striking out and it's like, what's going on, you know? So I, I had to understand, you know, what he was, what was coming. And then once I started to understand that, then I had a chance to work out what my response was. And I I actually managed to have a little bit of success against them towards the end of of my career. Um, And, you know, which was, which was, you know, very, uh, very thankful. And, you know, there was one moment actually where he – we were playing in the third test in Hamilton in 2000 and against Australia. And I'd, I'd played him well for the whole series. And it was in the last test match. And I, I sort of pushed one out. I'd taken him for a few boundaries um, during that innings. And and then I just pushed one out to mid-wicket for one, ran down the other end. And it was just – the umpire was there but just back a bit. And he sort of came close to me at the non-strikers end. And I sort, of lo- I, I sort of looked at him and he just, and he just looked at me, and he said, he just said, uh, you know, thank God you're down this end. And which for me was a backhanded compliment to say, you know, I'm sick of bowling at you. And for someone who was that competitive and that great, to just have that offhand comment, uh, you know, comment, uh, which only he and I heard uh, was the biggest compliment that i received in my entire career Yeah.
1: It's quite the compliment you touched on there sort of trying to pick his variations. And I think a good comparison for our American listeners is the idea, you know, more people more familiar with baseball, watching a pitcher yep. and trying to see the difference between, say, a curveball and a fastball or a change up. When you were picking Shane Warren's variations, are you then watching? Is it all just looking at it, the hand positioning? Is it watching the revolutions on the ball? Sort of what were you doing to as you started to kind of get to grips with it?
2: What you'll find in cricket is that it's, it comes down to point of release. So, I mean, uh, perhaps a, I, I mean I I don't know baseball that well, but obviously I know the, the different pitches and, and what's going on. But I, I'm not sure where the, the batter is is sort of looking or what they're focused on. But from a cricket perspective, you're looking you're, you're looking at his release. Um, because <clears throat> if if a ball uh, is going to be sort of tossed up, which means it might have more spin on it or revolutions, then it might just pop a little bit more out of his hand. Um, and so that gives you the opportunity to come down the pitch and to, to get to the, the ball to be able to to play a bigger shot. Um, if it's a little bit flatter, then it might be a slider, uh, but then uh, a ball may sort of come out uh, wrong from his hand and and the trajectory is quite low, and so it'll drop short, which means you can get on the back foot and, and play a shot there. But then the art of Warren uh, was that he could uh, set you up with that delivery, that deliberately sort of, was short they gave you the comfort to go back and 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 play that shot and then he had this delivery called a, a flipper and so the flipper would come out or he'd literally squeeze it out the front of the hand it, to the eye it looked like it was going to be short but in in tennis if you you know if you play a a backspin shot so you you everyone's familiar with tennis and you cut underneath the ball and the ball will sort of travel It travels a little further, so the same the same principle applies with the flipper and the fact that it it sort of he cuts underneath it. So to the eye, it looks like it's going to be short. So you go back in preparation, but then the ball is coming through sort of quicker and faster, and and it sort of pitches up further and skids. So the art of deception was really the the key part of Warren, and um, you know he just he had that ability to um, you know, uh, sort of create that illusion of what was going on. Plus, you know, you would, you would at times, I, I mean, I remember coming down the pitch and I'd, and I'd connect and, and hit him for a six. And, um, and then he's sort of standing there looking at me like, Oh, and I'm like, dude, the ball's gone 20 rows back. Like, it's like, what, what's with the oh and so he's like well come on go again I'll, I'll toss it up you go again and so it's like oh okay all right <laughs> so so that he was he was forever the gambler and of course he he loved poker uh, so he was a big hold'em uh player and so you know that again that was his style on the field which was which is what made him always entertaining.
0: so so then how do you prepare for that then in in the sense that there aren't many him right so is it just experience over time you get more and more used to it and you, you see it more and kind of pick up on it more or is there ways that you can actually prepare and practice for for facing someone like him
2: yeah it's, it's a really good question man because you know <clears throat> if it's seen bowling or faster bowling then you've got access to that and and you're right how how do you how do you prepare for Augusta? Um, You know, the only way you can do that is by playing it. And so the guys, guys who play it more often have got a a better shot. And so um, it it comes down to, if you can get into an innings against him and, you know, be out there for a while and sort of watch it and see it, um, then you can begin to understand how you can adapt and how you play. So, so you're right. I mean, in in preparing for it, it's, it's almost nigh on a possible, um but when you when you get out there um, and and settle in and don't rush, because you know, you can get out early, but if you sort of bide your time a little bit, but then you start to see things that you perhaps haven't seen before, but you know they have, Today, I mean, we we had access to video as well, obviously. Um, and today's training methods, you know, are very extensive with regards to catalog of information and what you've got. Um, so, you know, you you can be prepared visually from a from a video perspective. Um, and now with some of the uh, stuff that they'll have with um, VR, um, where you can immerse yourself um, into that space as well they've got bowling machines that have the bowlers actually running up on the video screen and delivering the ball out. So, you know, so there's been an evolution with regards to, to how you prep, because you, you know, you're right, Frank, it's, it's yeah. How do, how do you prepare to play Jordan um, outside of playing against them? You know, it's, it's like you, you have to play.
1: I always find that interesting when you have, I mean, NFL teams, you know, they'll have their practice squad in the buildup for games where they have their backup quarterback, try and simulate, the playing style of the opposition quarterback, <laughs> which is kind yeah, of fine yeah, yeah. when maybe if it's Tom Brady, you can't replicate the accuracy or his ability to read the game, but at least from a physical correct. Standpoint but if you're prepping, but if you if you're prepping
2: to play Kansas, I mean, yeah. how do you, do you do? how do you replicate Mahomes yeah. <laughs> exactly, or yeah. or the pace of um, uh, uh, Justin Allen with regards to if you're playing Bills, you know, like how do you replicate as a as a defensive player? The speed of that pass, like what is you, you, whether that's a machine that you've got to get, but um, but again you've got to pick up cues. So it's only it's only once you begin to play against them. And this is, I suppose, this is the genius of Brady, in that um, you know everybody everybody knew what he was going to do, but it was like, but you've got to stop him, you know. And that's and that's the key to any great player is that same with Warren. Warren Warnwood before the series, he would tell you all the deliveries that he's got. So there's no there's no secrets. It's just how you then uh, react to what's going to come down at that specific time. So so all the great players, mate. Yeah, there's no there's no secrets. It's just, it's just you've got to be prepared to, to 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 play, and your game needs to be needs to match theirs uh, in the pressure situations.
1: So we've touched on Warren there, who was obviously one of the dominant bowlers of your generation. I'd be interested in asking you from from a batting perspective then, was there a sort of very successful bowler who you loved playing against, who might surprise people, where you just felt more comfortable, and then one bowler who perhaps didn't have the same level of international success, who you really struggled against for reasons you could never quite figure out? Yeah, I, for me, I was always like
2: spin bowlers. I I always felt I could, I could dominate. So regardless of whether it was you know Murali or Kumble or Warren or you know whoever Mushtaq Ahmed whoever whoever that spinner was, I always felt like I could, I could impart um, a bit of uh, dominance on them and, and and sort of you know and, and get on top of the spin bowler. Um, <clears throat> the one thing. Uh, from from the pace side of things, you know, it was scary. Uh, some when you're up against guys like Brett Lee, uh, Shoaib Akhtar, um, you know, guys that are bowling 106, they're bowling 100 miles an hour. Um, you know, with a view that if you sort of get it wrong, then you know there's there's some damage there. But it's amazing how you know we we would have practices sometimes where the rugby players in New Zealand were were you know were at the same venue and we would get these massive big all blacks to come to the cricket nets and sort of face some, some bowling, some faster bowling. And, you know, these guys would get out of the nets within three balls. They're like, no, this we're not, we're not doing this. This is crazy. This is crazy stuff. And and then we would sort of look at them and go, yeah, but you've got sort of 230 pound dudes running down um, and smashing into you. (laughs) It's like, you guys are crazy. So in your own sport, you know, those, Threat levels, I suppose, which is, you know, that's what always makes for me the NFL, you know, arguably the best sport on the planet, where you've got that imminent physical danger and hurt and pain, along with the tactical uh, element of, of what's actually trying to occur. So, and in cricket, baseball, I mean, baseball is the same. You know, you've got dudes who are pitching 100, 100 miles an hour, um, and if they want to, they can hit you in the head. and um, And so you've always you've always got that fear element whereas in a sport like tennis for example you know that's not part of the psychology of the sport but in a game like ice hockey or or uh, american football or in cricket you have the fact that you can get seriously hurt um you know during the act of, of what's going on in the, in the sport so made the fast bowlers were always you know that was the one you had to overcome uh the fear uh, aspect of it and then sort of you know work about Uh, Playing, but I uh, Wazim Akram to me was you know he's he's the main man you know what he could do with the ball and what he could and how he performed Uh, you know he he's the player's player you know like that's that's the Michael Jordan where you the players that play at that level they know how difficult it is to do to do what he's doing Um, and with Wazim Akram some of the things that he could do with the ball were just. Phenomenal, um, and you know, which to your your average fan may not seem that special, but when you know how difficult it is to do that thing, um, you know, he he was great. But I, but I only I feared for my life uh, twice. Actually, I was playing against uh, Steve Harmison, um, the English fast bowler, pretty much in the prime of his career around two uh, thousand uh, yeah two thousand four. And it was the end of it was my last test series, so I was what thirty four. Man, I, I I've had my time and I'm done. And so I've walked. I've <clears throat> I'm getting ready to bat at at Hittingley at Leeds, and uh, and he's bowling towards the end of the day, and he's just bowling the speed of light, and you know, and bounce and everything. And I I was getting ready to to go into bat, and I and when I used to bat, I used to have uh, chewing gum. So part of the reason for the chewing gum was a bit that you know when things got a bit busy in your mind uh you would go back to focusing on the chewing gum so you you would just think about the chewing gum and then that would help you to sort of you know keep your mind in one place and so as I was sort of getting ready to bat I had my chewing gum and I thought no I I just put it back down cuz I thought look I'm going to get hit in the head here then I'm going to choke on my chewing gum and so that's not going to be a good result so I just that's the only time in my career that I I actually decided to not have chewing gum, but uh, yeah, the, the faster bowlers can be can be uh, can be daunting.
1: I think that's an interesting topic because I mean, certainly for Americans, they hear cricket and they associate it. Obviously, they think Test matches, they think incredibly they think the five days that it never ends. It's kind of
2: boring as batshit, Yeah,
1: exactly. From a player's <laughs> perspective, though, obviously it. It's... Kind of raises a unique mental challenge, you know, certainly when you're batting in terms of maintaining that focus and sort of having facing a delivery and then maybe having 20, 30 seconds before the next one comes and having to do that over the course of hours. Was there anything aside from the chewing gum, sort of any sort of mental process that you went through in your longer innings to try and maintain focus and and keep that at the right level?
2: Well, I was pretty lucky, man. I used to be too impatient when I was batting. So I was there for, uh, for a good time and not a long time. So I um, I was sort of uh, um, at uh, pains to, to to make it entertaining for myself and, and for, for others watching. But, uh, you know, guys that do bat eight hours, you know, sort of like bat for a day, day and a half. I mean, the ability to switch on and off uh, because cricket is a unique game. I mean, it's, it's sort of wrapped up in this team uh, cloak, if you like, where – You have 11 people in a team, but it's actually an individual pursuit. I mean, at any one time, you've only got two dudes who are involved in the game. You've got you and the batter. So it's sort of the closest I think that cricket comes to in a sport is um, team golf, like Ryder Cup, uh, where in the Ryder Cup, everybody's, Individual score goes towards the team score, um, so you can play like a complete dog, uh, lose your matches for the USA, and then the USA can win the Ryder Cup. Um, conversely, I can bowl like a complete clown, um, but we go on to have a great uh, bowling performance because of the team, and we we win we win the match. So you know it's understanding that you know your part in the in the game is is when it's happening. Um, and so, outside of that, you need to switch off, and you've got to um, sort of remain focused. But at the end of the day, when you're needed to perform, whether that's with the bat or the ball, that's your time to switch on. So, you know, you've 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 got to do that. Um, and in cricket, especially, made over a five day period, uh, you know, it batters it's a tough game mentally from the batting perspective. You could be an opener, uh, you get out the first over of of the day and in, in the match. Uh, you may not get another bat till day three, so you've got you've got to sleep for two nights, thinking about the fact that you've got no runs in the first innings and then come out and 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 get ready to perform again so so mentally it's that's a it's a really challenging thing um and you know in cricket once you go's goes over that's it you know you're you're done whereas the good thing with the bowling side is that you can you know you get to have more chances so yeah being a top water batter
1: no. <laughs> I guess that, that feeds into one of my other questions, which is kind of more the state of the game at the moment. You talk about being there for a good time, not a long time. I think, you know, global batting averages and test cricket have really suffered in, over the recent seasons. And for the most part, there's only a handful of players who've managed to avoid that. Uh, a lot of people attribute that to the growing popularity of T20 cricket and how that's maybe removed some of the fundamentals and, and that mental approach and being willing to grind out a test innings. When you look at it, given your style of play and the fact that you still managed to have a a good success at the test level, what do you think it is down to? Yeah, I I think you've you've actually just surmised it very well.
2: And that is that with conditions um, that uh, players today face in first-class cricket, so in the the level below test cricket, um, at at domestic level, the prime um, window for play Uh, when pitches are at their best, are generally in the middle of the summer. And that used to be the time that would be given to the longer form of the game, whether that's three-day or uh, four-day first-class play. Uh, But now that the one-day game and the shorter version uh, is dominating commercially, then you're finding that um, the longer version is getting put at the beginning of the season and the end of the season. And that is notoriously more difficult uh, because of the nature of the pitch, the weather conditions... Um, and so from a, a batting perspective, you know, you you don't have the opportunity to sort of graft uh, and grind out an in innings on a good pitch because the pitches themselves now are um, at the mercy of seasonal conditions. And so, you know, it's better to go and get a quick 60 um, than, you know, grind out uh, 140 on a on a, on a good pitch uh, in a high-scoring game because, you know, uh, runs are going to dominate over, the, over wickets. So, yes, there is a propensity now to prioritise shorter form, which the flow-on effect is that we don't have young batters um, capable of playing longer innings, but I don't think it's their fault. Um, they're just not being put on surfaces that are conducive to playing uh, longer innings, and so you know they're exposed to these pitches that are result pitches or, or just you know not 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 good, um, and so that's you know that's problematic, and I don't see that improving. Um, you know, I I think the shorter form is going to dominate more, and and I think that the IPL season in ten years could have another two to three franchises there, so so then do we start to see the IPL in India becoming like the EPL in football um, where, you know, there's a, a big domestic window and a shorter international window because at the moment there's a small domestic window for IPL and a big international window. But as commercial revenues increase, um, could that be the way it goes?
1: And if you'd been put in that position, then obviously there are players who choose to focus exclusively on white ball cricket the sort of limited over versions Mm -hmm. of the games if you were sort of redoing your career at this moment in time given your skill set would that have been a choice you would have made or do you think you still would have wanted to represent new zealand in test matches and and sort of play the longer form yeah
2: again good question i think i think it's a a timing thing because back then you know uh test cricket and international cricket was what paid the bills, um, and that's what you got paid for. Uh, with the advent of uh, domestic T20 cricket, um, can you deny a young cricketer that wants to come through and, and pick up a contract in five or ten years' time that's worth five to $8 million, um, or they can play international cricket and earn $300,000? You know, it, it's it will be once there's a massive gulf in, <clears throat> in what the earning potential is that really takes any decision out of your hands because, I mean, ultimately you need your skill to be rewarded and you need to look after family, you need to look after your future um, and you can't begrudge anyone, um, you know, going down that path. So, you know, I I think um, the, the one-day game in India <clears throat> will just keep uh, crunching more and more time in the cricket calendar over a year and it's inevitable. Um, you know, it's it's a beast uh, and, you know, it's, it rivals all American global sports, uh, with regards to its value. Um, so yeah, I, it's not going to slow down.
0: So focusing on the international side, um, how fierce is the rivalry between Australia and New Zealand when, when you were playing? Because I think most Americans, you know, they're used to American sports where you have, let's say the Yankees and the Red Sox, but they're they're trading players. There's free agency. There's a lot of movement. Whereas you know you're not really seeing players move nationalities very <laughs> often. So you know it's it's a pretty set rivalry. And 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 how you know how fierce was it when you played?
2: Yeah, it was it was it was always it was with respect. You know, it was almost sort of like the best way to describe them. It man, was like a um, uh, big brother, little brother, and a bit like U.S.A. versus Canada. You know, like it's uh, if you if you've got that. Ice hockey game happening. Um, you know, you're going to get uh, sort of it's a parochial uh, aspect to, to sort of you know what's going on. It's a national uh, flavour to to the match, and um, you know, big brother um, will probably usually win over over the little brother, and, and but you know, New Zealand will have. Uh, famous victories and you'll you know you'll always nip at the heels and and do that sort of thing so or you might have a period where you've got a good group of players and so for a year or two you might sort of dominate but but then you know the larger pool of players that Australia uh, generally you know has at its disposal sort of you know that, that class and that talent comes through so you know you'll get pockets where you know it's you're doing well and you're you're having good victories um but more often than not you're getting your your backside slapped so um you know it's a it was a it was t- it was it was tough but it was always great to play i mean playing in australia um you know the weather the conditions you know when you played in australia you were not only playing the players but you're playing the flight attendants um the Pilots who sort of welcome you, you know, onto flight seven four seven to Brisbane. We've got the uh, New Zealanders uh, who were thumped by our Aussie boys um, yesterday, and congrats to the Aussie boys. So, and then the taxi drivers, you've got the shop assistants. I mean, everywhere you go, you were playing Australia. Um, so that was what was great about touring Australia because if you performed over here, um, then you know it was, it was special. And and if if they actually if they were booing you. That's a good thing uh, because they they thought that you were worthy of of actually being booed, whereas if you were a younger player or sort of someone they didn't really know, then they didn't waste their breath um, on you so it was a backhanded compliment to be uh to be the one that was
1: targeted on that note then where was the sort of most hostile place for you to tour um, England England was
2: always it was tough because you know the the stuff you get from the crowd is, is always quite jovial, but sort of, you know, has that slice of poison in it the whole time where, you know, the the songs that are coming out and, you know, what they do, there's always that underlying tone and they're very smart and very clever and very funny over in England. So it was, that was always good. Um, the Aussies, South Africa was, was hard. Uh, the crowds would get into you in South Africa. Um, and, but, you know, Aussie, Aussie was always the, the, the toughest, again, from on the on-field side of it and then the crowds. And if you're fielding down on the boundary, you know, you're, just, you're just copying it from the fans um, down there as well. So, I, again, I think you know, times have changed with regards to what's acceptable to say at a, at a venue where you've got the public present. Um, so I don't think I could repeat most of the things that were said to me on the boundary uh, in Australia on this show, but uh, it was always, always colourful.
1: <laughs> yeah Now I always wonder I mean and were you ever tempted to say anything back or for the most part just rose well, above it
2: no I, I think no you're always better to get them on your side like I just think you know I would what I would try and do is to to turn it around and the fact that as long as you could you, if there's always one guy in the crowd right so who's with his mates who have been a bit and a bit loud so if, if you can sort of I always found if I could turn it around back onto that guy. And so then everybody would sort of um, uh, get with me to get on that guy and you could have some fun. I mean, that's really, cause I mean, they're there to be entertained. You know, you paid, you paid your money. Um, you got your ticket you're sitting down, you're out for a good day and you want to be entertained. So, um, so for me, mate, it was, it was never about taking a Um You just, you know, you, you, you got in on the fun. And,
0: and what about on the pitch? I mean, you talked about uh, you know, Warren had that kind of comment just to you, but is is there a lot of kind of not trash talk, but maybe a little bit of trash talk on the pitch and where there there are people who are notorious for kind of getting under your skin a little bit?
2: Yeah, um, it's total trash talk, Frank. So (laughs) with
0: regards to, you know, I think
2: whether it's basketball or it's football, I mean, when you've got that much... um, Testosterone and alpha male uh, in one place. Um, you know, you're always you're always going to get that type of outcome. And but look, I mean, some pe- but some guys don't. I mean, some guys don't engage in it. They don't they don't bother with it. Um, other guys uh, feed off it, so they actually invite it because they find that that lifts their game. Um, and other players find that by giving it it lifts their game. So, so again, I, I sort of come back to that thing I said, circle back to the thing I said at the start of the show. You know, you need to find what your triggers are. Uh, when you're in uh, competitive international sport, you need to find what things make you tick, what things push you. Um, and so the Australians were always, um, you know, they were always very uh, forthright with their comments about your particular game. But, you know, they would maybe... Do it for fifteen minutes, um, you know. And if you were foolish enough to engage or, or get out at that time, then they've won, you know. So they'd leave you alone after a little while. Um, <clears throat> the English were always, again, very subtle with what they did. Um, sometimes the subcontinent guys would speak in um, Urdu or Hindi, um, so you've got absolutely no idea what's been said. Um, but they'll drop an F bomb every once in a while, so you know what's going on. <laughs> and then, um, uh, but you know, I think competitively, you know, everybody at that level, if you, you know, if you raise the stakes, then, you know, they're, they're not going to back down. So, you know, and if it needs to be left on the field though, so, you know, this is, it's not a case of, you know, you don't, you don't take it personally and you don't, um, you know, take it off the field. So it's just in the heat of battle really.
1: Yeah. i always think it would be interesting to hear your name, sort kind of how to experience it being in Europe, but you hear your name in a different language, And so you know that you're the topic of conversation, but you got no idea what's being said about you. I think that's almost more more disconcerting than actually being able to understand whatever the insult was. And I'd like to bring up, I guess, what is a more difficult topic in some respects, but sort of towards the back end of your career, and the cricket fans will be familiar with it, there was, you know, you were at the center of a a match-fixing scandal where you were eventually able to clear your name um, both directly, uh, you know, in in a libel case and then also in a perjury case afterwards. It kind of came back into the news in cricket when former New Zealand captain um, uh, Brandon Taylor admitted to the fact that he had been involved in some match fixing. I guess, what was that like to go through in the moment? I mean, obviously it would have been horrible. And is it frustrating that this has undoubtedly affected your sort of long-term legacy and standing within the game, even though you were able to go through the process in courts and clear your name.
2: Yeah. I think, I think that last sentence you just said is the most important one. And it's the only one that matters um, is that, you know, you go through, you go through that process, uh, you know, not once, but twice and, um, and sort of come through it. You know, I, I had, you know, great support from, uh, from friends and family. Um, and it was a, a very difficult time, but <clears throat> for, you know, having, recently suffered this health uh, scare um, one thing that that has done for me is put everything in perspective um, you know uh, with regards to literally um, you know <clears throat> what what happened in my life before that that date um, and quite simply what you know the rest of my life is about so whilst for me you know I acknowledge you know all of those things uh, that have occurred um, that time um, uh, made me stronger and made me mentally tougher um, of what I went through and, um, and came out the other side. And I think, you know, going through that process um, probably aided me uh, in this process that I've just gone through and uh, the fact that, you know, the strength that you need um, to, 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 to get through that um, is, is hellishly important. And, uh, you know, from, from my side, mate, you'll always have um, uh, supporters, uh, detractors, um, and, and family. And, you know, ultimately uh, people will will make an opinion of you based on their assessment uh, from afar, because, you know, uh, we watch athletes uh, do their thing. Uh, We make judgments on on people um, and that's just that's human nature. So, you know, I'm I'm not here to uh, espouse, um, you know. whether it was hard luck or whether I was hard done, by, it's not, it's, it's not about that at all. It's a process that I went through and I came through. Um, It's made me tougher. Um, And so, you know, for me off the back of what's occurred just recently, um, you know, I I do look back, but for me, it's about looking forward. You know, I'm a a lucky man to, to even be here talking to you guys. And, um, and that's something that, you know, for me, that's, you know, when I'm looking at, you know, what's important in life, um, that for me is, is unbelievably important.
1: No, it definitely puts things in perspective. And I mean, and, and also as we've touched on, I mean, I, I suppose a bitter ending towards the back end of your career, but you still did have a, a career that most, you know, aspiring athletes would, would dream of, you know? So I, I, yeah. also, that's the other difficult part where there could be frustration, but fundamentally if you got offered it at the start, probably would have taken it without, you know, thinking twice. Yeah. But the
2: thing as well, mate, is that, you know, we can, you know, you can never have regrets with regards to your journey. And, you know, the journey that you're on is the journey that you're on. And the key is to not, um, I suppose, be victim to anything. Um, uh, You know, it's any, any situation you find yourself in, there is a positive in there. And, you know, it may take Time for that to um, sort of emerge or to come through, but the difficulties that I went through in that time um, certainly made me stronger as a person. And as I said, if that was the case, then you know maybe that helped me get through this period for what went on. So there's always lessons. There's always a silver lining, um, and you know you're you're better off looking at yourself um, for me f- through th- through the lens of what you've learned and 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 what you go through. You know, there's there's always two ways to go, man. You can, you can laugh or cry about it. And, you know, there's certainly no, no point in, in crying about things. I mean, you, you know, you, you get on with it and, 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 and that's the way it goes.
1: It's a great attitude to have. And you, I know we're getting towards the back end of our time with you, but uh, bef- before I hand over to Frank for maybe a final question, you've just said no regrets, but one question we do like to ask athletes who come on the podcast is if you could have one sort of, match back or delivery back or decision back you made in a match from your career? Is there, it's a difficult one to put you on the spot with, but is there anything that sticks out where you just think, gosh, I wish I hadn't come down the track that one time, or, you know, I wish I'd done a a slightly different delivery. Does anything stick out there?
2: Yeah. I, it's funny. It's funny you say that. Cause like, I, I honestly, I like the, there is, there is nothing that I would, I would, I would change. I mean, I, I, I just think I, if I was ever going to do, I'm not sure regret is, is the word, but what what would I, maybe something I'd change um, and that I would have looked after my body better. Um, you know, I was someone that came from an era or, or sort of grew up in an era that was, um, you know, quite old school with regards to, you know, beer after the game and, you know, go out and, and do that. And, you know, I, I sort of, yeah. I, and then in, to, towards the latter part of my career, you know, I, I sort of got the value of, of rest, um, recuperation, uh, rehabbing, um, you know, all of those sorts of things that allow you um, to, to, to continue on. And when you look at TB12, man, yeah, and you look at the way that he looks after his body, you look at uh, Russell Wilson, what he spends on, you look at LeBron, what he spends uh, on his body, you know, I I might have been able to spend a grand on my body, not a million like Russell, but 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 the thing is, is that the key or, or what I would have liked to have done in my career, mate, is just yeah, just just looked after the body a bit better, and that could have you know that could have been Elon me a, a bit more from a playing perspective.
0: Yeah. So, Chris, thanks for for chatting with us, and I guess my question is kind of something that might be a little foreign to most Americans is that you know your regard is one of the great all-rounders of your time and for Americans sport is so specialized that you don't see people who play offense <laughs> and defense in both ways and things like that but f- so for you as an all-rounder how how did that happen were you really good starting off as a batsman and then developed the bowling or did it come the other way and then in terms of in your professional career, were you practicing more one than the other because one was just naturally better? How, how did that work that you were able to be so good at both bowling and, and batting?
2: Yeah, I think, I, again, circling back to what I said earlier, I was given really good fundamentals um, as a youngster. So from, you know, from like seven or eight through to 11, that was in both, in both facets. So I had a good defense um, from a batting perspective. And that is the one thing about, um, look T20 has changed things a bit because you know defense is, is not you know overly uh, required but I still think though that you know, to win um, matches you know it's you know you you can have the glory you can have the attacking side of things but man, if you're going to win championships it is defense you have you have to be able to you've got to have a defense to get you through the season and for me everything was built from a batting perspective on defense and, uh, and then it evolved as I sort of got older, but I, I was always passionate about both, but I think my true love was in bowling because, you know, I, it was just the, the, the blood, sweat, and tears that it took, to get five wickets, you know? So would I be happier with the five wickets or a or hundred? Um, for me, it was five wickets because, you know, to come off the field, having bowled over 20 overs, take your socks off, you've got blood in your shoes from from sort of grinding away and toiling away and your muscles are sore and it's aching and it's hard work. Um, you know, you, you know you've earned it. And, um, you know, the batting side for me was always the enjoyment. I, I went out to entertain not only myself, but if people got enjoyment off the back of that then you know fantastic and so that was very much how I categorized what I what I did I saw bowling as my trade um and um I saw batting as my time to party so that was that was the enjoyment side
1: That's a great answer and, and I know we're we're kind of running out of time so thank you so much Chris for taking the time to speak with us I mean it, you know not only I think it would be great to hopefully have you back on in the future because I think we've only scratched the surface in terms of your career and the cricketing insights, but certainly an inspirational story in terms of the recovery and, and, and what you're dealing with on, a, on, a, on the health front.
2: Thanks, fellas. And thoroughly enjoyed it. And, uh, and every success for you with the show as well.
1: Thank thanks. you. And, yeah, and thanks. And one final thanks, thing, everybody. I guess, for our listeners, is there a way for them to follow or interact with you on social media? Is there anywhere where you're particularly active? Uh, on on all fronts, whether it's
2: um, uh, LinkedIn, Insta, or Twitter, um, so I'm sort of keeping people updated uh, on all forms of social media. So I'm out there uh, trying to keep it as real as I, I possibly can. And as I said, what's uh, really humbling is uh, the responses you get back. Where on those really crappy days, um, you know, reading the comments that come through is, uh, is fantastic. So so please please keep them
1: coming. Great. Thank you very much. Inspirational stuff, and and we hope you have a great day. Thanks again. Thanks, Thomas.